Big shakeup in Minnesota. Real big shakeup. Eric Sugarman's out after 16 years as the head athletic trainer. And it's a little sketchy. We're going to talk about it here on the Locked On Vikings podcast. You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Locked On Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As always, I'm your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. Thank you so much for making Locked On Vikings your first listen of the day. And uh, today's Twitter Tuesday. Most of the show is going to be a mailbag like it normally is on Tuesday. Um, but we got to talk about something pretty big first, which is Eric Sugarman out as head athletic trainer, the way it was reported, at least by uh, Ben Gessling, was parting of the ways. So that's it's different than Sugarman fired or whatever. Uh, different vibe, but same idea. He's not going to be the guy. They're going to have to get a new one. And that's huge. I, he was a children's hire. I mean, he's been there forever. And it's ingrained in, I think, the mythology of the Vikings a little bit. The, the donut club, club thing and what he did with COVID and all that. He would, seemed like this really well-respected guy throughout the league. And then <laughs> there's been some, if you're familiar with this, it, it, got, it gets a little bit weird after this because on social media, at least, after um, the, the change was announced, a bunch of former players started to chime in. And Fadio Denebo told a story about his rookie year. He was on the practice squad, a story of being pressured into playing through injury. Jeff Baddett, who never made the team, but he was in a lot of training camps and he had injury issues in those training camps, um, responded to that with a bunch of exclamation points, kind of an affirmation. Jaleel Johnson also chimed in. Um, and both Matthew Collar and Ben Gessling kind of confirmed implicitly and a little cryptically um, that like, yeah, this is kind of a thing that the culture of fear, there'll be, uh, I believe, a Star Tribune article out today uh, with Ben Gessling going into more detail on this, where he says like that culture of fear thing that Eric Kendricks talked about after the, the day that Mike Zimmer was fired, they're like, hey, maybe let's not do that, do it that way this time. Um, that Sugarman might have been a part of that and might have been pressuring players to play through injury. This sucks. That's not very fun, really, at all. Um, and it sucks because a lot of people really liked Sugarman, both because it seemed like the way he handled COVID-19 and putting together the protocols and redesigning the whole Vikings facility so they could get through a season. He was kind of lauded as a hero for that. And also the Donut Club thing. And that's kind of the only thing that a lot of people know about Sugarman is the Donut Club thing and that it seems like he really cares and it seems like people really like him. Um, but if, if you're unfamiliar, Donut Club was a, a tradition right before they would fly out before every game where players could come and like have a donut. And it was like this team building thing that, that people seem to really like. And so a lot of people, I think, have a really positive idea of Eric Sugarman and this sort of shatters that worldview. And I think we just all have to sit down as a family and, and say, we got to be okay with that, that we, ha we have to be okay, not be okay with him pressuring players into playing through injury. That's terrible. But we have to be okay with that changing our opinion of Eric Sugarman. And if we have to change our opinion of Eric Sugarman because of something that we didn't know about before, that's okay. Um, that doesn't make you naive. That doesn't make you like Ua Homer or whatever. It's just, it's just you get new information and now we change what we think. If, if all that stuff is true, and I really don't see a reason not to believe it because everybody talking about it doesn't have exactly a lot to gain, um, then that really sucks. 
and uh, the and I'm glad the organization can kind of move in a new direction that maybe doesn't do that as much. But the cynic in me kind of says, like, man, it's kind of going to be that <laughs> everywhere. It's the NFL. I mean, Google Toradol. Uh, don't Google Toradol if you don't want your worldview really shattered. Everybody does that. There was the Antonio Brown thing with, uh, about him accusing Bruce Arians of pressuring him to play through an injury. I believe that, not because Antonio Brown is like a credible source, but because that's just really common. It's been around the league for forever. The NFL was invented in a military context with people who are all like war, like war veterans who, you know, like in the military, you push through and you man up and you tough it out. And it's all toxic masculinity all the time. And it's all this stuff that we've kind of learned now in the modern age isn't that good, but it still is absolutely in the NFL. And that pressure exists, even if people don't intend it to, that pressure just residually exists in the culture. Um, it's everywhere. And so I don't have a lot of faith that the next guy is going to like, not do that, because I don't know if I've ever heard of an NFL person that doesn't. But either way, if that's something that helps to repair the fractured relationship between the coach and the staff, then um, then, I'm, then I'm all for it. Um, let's move on to the mailbag, though. If you have questions for me, you can always send them to me at LukeBronNFL on Twitter, at LockedOnVikings on Twitter. You can always send an email to uh, LockedOnVikingsPodcast at gmail.com, or you can uh, fill out the Google form, which is linked in the show notes if you'd rather, better for like long form stuff. Um, so let's move, let's go in. It's, so first one comes from Oliver, who says, can I copy your math homework? Always. Next one comes from Nate Walton, who says, you had a conversation with Solomon Wilcox during Super Bowl week and something stuck out. He mentioned the Rams using 13 personnel, one running back and three tight ends. Is this a universe where McConnell decides Garrett Bradbury is converted to blocking tight end? Oh, I love how we're starting this. Uh, his deflection run in the Green Bay game showed just how athletic he is, and I don't want to see him gone unless we get a clear upgrade at center. Um, I think I'm with you there that, I, I mean, there's no reason to get rid of Garrett Bradbury this year because cutting him saves you zero dollars. His fourth year is fully guaranteed. That's how rookie contracts work. Um, so there's no reason to get rid. I mean, you could trade him to somebody else and get rid of the cap that way, but I don't know how much uh, of a return you would get because draft compensation in centers doesn't, the, the market's not huge. Um, but I, I think you could still try to upgrade at center though. If you get an upgrade at center and he like doesn't make the team, then sure, whatever, just, you know, you wouldn't expect to save any money that way. Um, no, he's not a tight end, but I love where your head's at. Um, another one from Oliver who says, do you think Cam Bynum could play the free safety slash tight end eraser role? I think his cornerback background should help him on one-on-one -on -one matchups. I kind of let him compete for it in the roster thing that I did yesterday. On yesterday's show, I did like a whole mock offseason where he could compete for a safety job. Um, the, the thing about it is both safeties will do both jobs depending on how the offense aligns. Um, that, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll align on one side or the other of the formation and you'll have to be the strong side safety where you're man to man covering a tight end. Both guys will have to do that. So I, I kind of say same thing I said yesterday, which is yes, he can compete for the job, but I wouldn't give it to him without him having to, he's, he's get, he should have to beat someone out for it, but I think he has earned the opportunity to try. Uh, Calabunga Kev time asks, why do people think it's a good idea to draft a receiver when our defense was complete? Uh, dog doo doo. Okay. Um, I don't know, man. You can kind of never have too many receivers. Honestly, it's like corners for me. Like if you have, imagine a team with five good receivers, does that scream scary to you or redundant? Because to me, that's horrifying. Holy crap. How are you going to cover that? Um, so I don't think you can have too many good receivers. And I also, I don't think like, I'm going to fight against this all draft season. Don't think about that as the first order thing. 
That is that is not the highest order term is what position they play. Is the player good? And then if it comes down to it, then decide about position or whatever. But if there are no good defenders available on your board and there is a good receiver, take the good receiver. Or if the receiver on the board is that much higher than everybody else defensively on your board, don't pass that guy just to take a defensive guy because your needs are different. That's always going to be the way it is. Your board should have need incorporated into it. Nobody should ignore positional value and need and stuff. But incorporate that into your rankings, you know, move your wide receivers two steps down if you don't think that they need them and move your defenders two steps up. That's fine. Uh, but after that, then just trust the board and take the person who is who is highest on it. Make those decisions ahead of time, but make them with the person in mind. I, I hate this tiebreaker nonsense. Like, well, what if the defensive end and the wide receiver have the exact same grade to you? They won't. They never will. If they do, then you got to try on your evaluation harder because there's probably a differentiating factor. Next one comes from Ryan, who asks, is the Calvin Ridley news enough for them to append an addition to the Secret Base series? Um, <laughs> no, I don't think so, right? I mean, look, that is the story where it was, and of course the story will continue to write itself for as long as the Falcons exist, but they're on the Dave Steep thing now, and I'm like pretty into it, so keep doing that. Uh, similarly, Norse Code asks, could Calvin Ridley have... Oh, so if you missed it, by the way, Calvin Ridley got suspended for a year for betting on Falcons games or on NFL games. Um, I, I don't think he did it while he was playing in them. It doesn't seem like, but he did bet on one that he missed. And like, that's obviously hugely against him. You can't do that. Uh, so he's suspended for a year. Norse Code asks, could Calvin Ridley, could Calvin Ridley have avoided his year long suspension if he simply called it grambling? Um, not sure I understand the question, but uh, if you want to get a grambling yourself, you should go to betonline.net. It is your one stop shop for all things grambling. Of course, March Madness is like around the corner, so you can get into that. They usually have cool bracket competitions and stuff on their website, which is all new and redesigned. You can bet on football futures too, or like uh, pro basketball, or hockey, or golf, or tennis, or even your favorite Vegas casino games. You can play them on there as well. You can uh, do player props, do weird parlays if you want to do that be a little a little like calvin ridley yourself if you are an nfl player please turn off the podcast do not listen this is don't do it if you're a player uh, but if you wanted to uh bet live on games too, bet on half bet at halftime you know is that team going to make a comeback that kind of thing you can do all of that stuff at betonline.net where the game starts thanks again for making lockdown vikings your first listen of the day let's keep it going the next one comes from nolan who asks do you have an opinion on the blocking ability of our current wide receivers now that it could be more relevant? I seem to recall more bad blocking reps and good ones from Thielen and Justin Jefferson, but this isn't something I paid close attention to in the past. Um, I, I, too, haven't paid the closest of attention. I seem to recall KJ Osborne having a lot of really good blocking reps and a, and a few really bad blocking reps. Like, I would call it up and down, which I guess averages out to mediocre, but it's very, like, it's a lot on the extremes. Um, I think Adam Thielen's pretty good at it. I mean, he's he's pretty sound at it. I, sometimes he'll get crushed by like a defensive end, but a lot of times like that's just the risk you take. Like he's just not going to win every block against Khalil Mack, you know. Um, and I, Justin Jefferson downfield is very tenacious. I really like him as a downfield second level kind of blocker. Um, but he, there's some refining he has to do. Sure, it, young player, it's going to be that way. Uh, Stizo asks, the Colts installed new turf in the summer of 2020. The new turf is apparently a lot quicker than the old one. How should we look to adjust the measured numbers as we do historical comparisons? Th that's going to be really tough. For now, you probably just have to kind of do your best to guess like what the effect that is. And you could probably take like all the wide receiver 40 times from the last two years and compare them to the last 10, see what the average is and like do your best there. Also accounting though that 
the, uh, the, the last two classes could have been faster than average, like genuinely, and it would be skewing your data. So you need a bigger sample, I think, than two years. You probably have to wait many years before you have a genuinely good adjustment that you can make and, and before there's like an agreed upon, yep, all right, take off, you know, three tenths for the turf or whatever it is. Um, so, but for now you probably just have to have to eyeball it the best you can. I'm sure there's more advanced math you, you can do if you wanted to ask like a real math professor, some kind of model where you took the like averages of each class or the, the medians of each class and kind of said, okay, was this a faster class or a slower class in general? And then maybe create like an index that can help you really do an adjustment or so there's probably better math you can do than just like averaging it and comparing. Um, but either way, I do think you probably need a bigger sample to have like a true accurate adjustment. Skull Actuary asks, will Kirk actually sign an extension to help the team or is he just not a team player? Look, man, I don't think, I, I hold no players to that standard. Go get the bag. I, I don't care who you are. If you are an undrafted free agent or if you're a guy who's already made $200 million, if you're, you know, Kirk Cousins or if you're my favorite player in the world, go get the bag. I, I don't think, and, and like economically, that's way easier for me to parse. Not only do I just think that's the right thing to encourage players to do, but economically, um, it, people are, it's the economics word for it is like a rational actor who will act in their own self-interest, who are not going to give up half of their money to charity or something because that ruins how economics works. And when we're predicting negotiations, it's easiest to predict when they're perfectly selfish. Um, and I don't mean selfish in a bad way. They should be selfish, secure as much money as you possibly can. And the Vikings should try to minimize that. And then that's the kind of competition that comes together in a, in a deal that the, this is the weird economics to the invisible hand of the market says is fair. But I think that's the way it should be in a market like this. Negotiate and players should be allowed and encouraged to negotiate or agents on their behalf but to do so as aggressively and using all the tools at their disposal as they possibly can and should. Uh, Kevin has a couple. First one is, what is your female companion? Think about what you do. How involved is she in it? Um, so she, a lot of times, I just need to bounce ideas off someone. So I'll just like explain something to her. And she is not into football at all. So if I'm like explaining cover three to her and I can get her to get it, I kind of feel like, okay, now I can get like a football watching audience to get it. A lot of times she just falls asleep and that's also great um, because sometimes I just need to bounce an idea off a wall and I just need to talk to talk out loud, like think out loud to someone. Um, she's unbelievably supportive though. I, I'm making jokes, but yeah, it's, it's insane how supportive she is of me having to make her like having to dominate the airwaves of the apartment for a half hour every single day and all the weird things that it does to my brain. Um, very, very appreciative of her, like insanely. Uh, the next one from Kevin is, will Donatel have his corners play sides or follow? Love to hear more about how that works. So it depends on the dudes. Um, so it, unless you have like a really good corner, you know, peak Stefan Gilmore, have that guy shadow the best receiver. If you don't, if there isn't a significant difference between one corner and the next, which is I think most teams... Um, then you might as well play sides. For whatever it's worth, the Broncos played sides last year. They didn't shadow, um, and that's where Donatel was. So I would be surprised if he shadowed unless they swung some insane thing like a trade for Xavier Howard or something like that where you have like a lockdown corner. Grape Emoji asks, you've mocked Daniil Hunter as a defensive end in your roster projection, but it would make 
But would it make more sense to have him as an outside linebacker? Looking at the Bears, where their two outside linebackers, Quinn and Mack, are both exclusively edge rushers, would Hunter fit better in that role, or will our scheme be different than what the Bears have been running? Uh, I mean, look, Sean Desai is a Fangio disciple too. So, like, yeah, they they could totally run it that way. Um, I mean, look, do you think of Vaughn Miller and Bradley Chubb as linebackers or edge rushers? And this is where it's like, what is an outside linebacker? Because when I hear outside linebacker, I think of like a 3-4 Sam linebacker. Um, you know, I think of, of KJ Wright, uh, or like, well, Bobby Wagner, I think plays more Mike, but yeah, somebody like KJ Wright, you know, I like, that's what I think of, uh, Terrell Suggs, that kind of deal. Um, not necessarily somebody like Vaughn Miller who, or Robert Quinn, who kind of does line up in that pseudo, that Jack position is what I've been calling it. Um, I didn't, I think Daniel Hunter probably can play coverage if you asked him to, he did so in college and stuff. I just, whatever you call it, I don't care. Just don't ask him to be in coverage a quarter of the time. That just feels like you're being way too nice to offensive tackles. Ryan Lundeen asks, are the Packers better off getting draft capital returns for Rodgers compared to giving him a market-setting long-term deal? Look, man, I know this is this time of year where money and resources are everything, and all we want is to hoard as many resources as possible so we can have the most exciting feel feelings during the offseason. <sighs> There's nothing that's going to take them closer to a Super Bowl than Aaron Rodgers. There's just no particular, nothing can happen with that $50 million that's going to take them closer to a Super Bowl than Aaron Rodgers. I, I honest to God, I don't know if you can overpay over Aaron Rodgers. The weird teams that he has dragged kicking and screaming into contention, you cannot overpay Aaron Rodgers. The Packers should just be willing to bend over backwards for it. They, they And I think they are, and I think that's correct of them. Um, so yeah, I think having Aaron Rodgers is the, in the building is going to be the best thing that they can possibly do. And they need to try to do that for as long as they possibly can. And I don't really think there are any exceptions until you go to like beyond the pale, like, no, they shouldn't pay him 50% of the cap, but within the realm of reality. Yeah. I, I just don't see a world where getting rid of Aaron Rodgers makes the pack, the Packers better in any way. Yannick, sorry if I mispronounce your name, by the way, Yannick Eckhart asks, uh, if your defense has to have a weak link, what position would it be? This is again, it's a positional value question. And I hate positional value questions because they dumb everything down so much. And I feel like a lot of people just get this idea in their head that like, well, if you invest in the right positions, you'll have a good team. And it's like, it's so dumbed down. We're so much more focused on, uh, would you rather have a linebacker or a cornerback that we don't actually know anything about the linebackers and the cornerbacks? I get so frustrated with it. I guess like an inside, like an off ball inside, you know, hook zone linebacker so, or like a coverage, like a nickel linebacker would be like the the least valuable thing to me. Um, because if they can't get involved in the run, if they're not a pass rushing threat and all they do is short zones, like that's kind of nothing. Um, so I guess that but I don't know. I kind of, I, I reject the premise of the question. Look, I got a lot more questions to get to. So uh, we'll, we'll get to those. I promise I'm going to try to get to all of yours if I can. Um, but first, let me talk to you about your car. You got to take care of your car. And look, it can be really intimidating to go to the mechanic because you're dropping your car off and then they're going to be like, that'll be $1,500. And you don't know if that's fair or not because you don't know anything about cars. Maybe you do. If you're a black thumb and you love to do your own stuff, rockauto.com is excellent for you. You can get whatever part you want delivered right to your door and you're probably going to get it cheaper than like a brick and mortar auto shop that's got to like ship it the part in and they're going to charge you a fee and this and that. No, no, no. Just use rockauto.com. They've been using, doing this online for 15 years. They're a family company. They're going to take care of you. If you're not a black thumb, you should still do that. You should ask them what part they're going to put in your car, get that part delivered to your door if your car is in shape that you can afford to do this. 
Um, and then just take it to the mechanic there and say, hey, can you just install this and I'll just pay you for the for the time, for the labor? Most mechanics will do that. And if it's a superficial change, something where you don't need to like lose your car for a week if you need it or something like that, that can save you a bunch of money on the, on the back end. So head on over to rockauto.com, enter your make, your year, and your model, get whatever you need, whatever you're buying there. Just make sure you let them know that Locked On sent you. Because if you don't, the rabbits are going to take me somewhere where you will never find me again. Rock Auto. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. All right, all right, all right. Let's clear out this mailbag. Next one comes from Sleepless in Sturgeon Lake, who says, I've seen a few off-season articles, quote-unquote, reminding us not to forget about Mond. Putting aside the fact that the authors are Zimmer haters that think he was unfair, did a bad job with rookies, O'Connell's biggest Kirk positive is his accuracy. In the Combine Presser, O'Connell talked about accuracy as a natural ability, not something that can be learned, a la Josh Allen. If we take him at his word, that's a bad sign for Mond, right? That's not Mond's game. Um, okay, so first off, I really agree with O'Connell on this. I, accuracy has always been the biggest thing for me, and it's always made it really complicated for me to evaluate Kirk Cousins because there's stuff that's really frustrating, but at the end of the day, he is accurate. Um, I've gone into that plenty, though. Um, and I also do think of it as an ability that you kind of have or you don't. Um, yeah, fixing mechanics and fixing throwing and fixing accuracy, like to make an inaccurate quarterback accurate, you have to fix every mechanical problem they have. And if they have one little thing that's knocking them off balance, maybe you can fix that. Accuracy for Kellen Mond, if I remember, I was a little higher on his accuracy than everybody else was. And my problems were more that he just had a style of play that I was really worried wasn't going to translate to the NFL. Um, but I think, I don't know, man. I don't think he's very good. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, based on training camp, what the little we could see in training camp and preseason, he was awful. He came in, he threw three passes. One of them was almost a hideously, like, incomprehensibly bad pick six that was dropped. And it's like, wow, okay, if he had that in him in three plays, like, I don't want to overreact to a small sample, but it kind of confirms what I already thought. And he couldn't beat out Sean Mannion for a backup job. That really is concerning to me. So I'm very concerned about Kellen Mond. I also kind of knew he was going to take a year to get through some of the other, like to read the field faster, which Mike Zimmer said and stuff like that. So I don't think that those comments are necessarily a bad sign for Mond, but I don't also don't think that it's um, looking great out there for him, kiddo. <laughs> Uh, next one comes from Cho, who asks, oh, I love this one. Am I wrong for to be worried about how people refer to PFF info? From my point of view, PFF is very good at taking subjective observational information and converting it into data, but people often treat it as though that's that makes it objective, which I don't think it does. To me, there's a danger into taking qualitative analysis and presenting it as though it's quantitative. So I, I think I agree with you, especially on that last part. I always say qualify before you quantify. And I think what I know about PFF's grading system, they are qualifying with quantification in mind. And those are different things. Um, with, with what PFF's grading system is, it's very, I think it's very focused, too focused on being objective. And they have subjective things, you know, did the cornerback cover the wide receiver well is a subjective question. Um, but they, they have things like, you know, if the pass rush was good, you know, did it get to the quarterback or didn't it? Or did he beat his man or didn't he? They do have little rules and regulations all over their grading process that try to conform it as much as possible. 
early in the days of PFF, we're talking 2014, 2015, when they first started really becoming like a mainstream thing, um, there were a lot of things about PFF just like getting a ton of flack for having a subjective and unpopular opinion on something. And I think that made them overreact and really create a process that's too focused on being objective. And then, and they're afraid of this. And I think that they flirt with it sometimes becoming just another stats website. Like their coverage grades in particular, for one, their buckets for what coverages can be are way too broad. They will divvy coverages up into cover four, cover two, cover three, whatever. Um, but like what cover four is in the modern NFL is an ins like two insanely different things. And so to try to take that and all boil it into one thing becomes less useful tool. And then grading in that context, like I have to add a huge grain of salt. Add to that, that their grades are heavily weighted toward plays where a, a defensive back is targeted, plays where you're targeted. Um, and that really wrecks it for me because you're basically only focusing on their worst moments. And there is something to be learned about, okay, when they are targeted, do they recover or don't they? But that's a fraction of the, of the whole thing. Um, and I also think that when it comes to who messes up on offensive line, they will decline to guess if they don't have like an easy idea of who was supposed to be blocking who. They'll kind of chalk it up to a wash um, and either like throw that rep out of the sample or kind of chalk it up to a neutral or something like that. Um, and th that means that as an individual observer, you're going to have a power that PFF declines having because they're trying to, to grade every single player. They're trying to take a cornerback in a Fangio scheme and a cornerback in a Zimmer scheme and a cornerback in a Pete Carroll cover three scheme and then compare them and try to boil them all together and compare who's better at what, even though their assignments are all totally different. As an individual person, we don't have to try to boil them together. We can say, well, that guy's in cover two and he's doing a little less and he did better, but the person with a harder job who did worse had to had more responsibility on his plate. So we can, you know, parse that and kind of come up with an opinion without having to assign numbers to it. Um, and I think that's just always going to be an important part, which is why, I mean, even PFF will say this, don't take it as gospel. Don't take it as the only thing you need to know. PFF grade is some evidence and you bring it up in an argument or whatever, but be prepared to bring up something else because PFF generalizes a lot of things that I don't think should be generalized because they are trying to prime it for quantification. I say qualify and then you can tally it all up. But first you have to have like a, a qualitative substantive opinion on what you're looking at. And then you can start tallying how many times that thing happened. A big PFF rant, I know, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at on that right now. But I should mention that, I mean, if you don't feel like watching a bunch of tape, PFF can be a decent proxy for that. But I think you should treat it as just that proxy. Dorby asks, two summers ago, I met a fox in northern Minnesota named George. I left him a note this last summer and he never wrote back. Do you think he hates me? Um, well, if he's a real fox, then no. Metaphorically, if he's a fox, uh, maybe. I don't know, Dorby, and you, you would have to ask him. Shoot that ask asks, after your last podcast, I'm wondering if you're actually a burner account for Rob Brzezinski. Have you ever been spotted in the same room together? I declined to answer. And then finally, Pseudonamed asks, what are your thoughts on the highly likely rumor that Rastapasta is actually an honest-to-God crab? Uh, do you see that playing into the Kirk trade? Um, no, I do not see that playing into the Kirk trade because Kirk Cousins doesn't care about what happens on Twitter. Um, but could he be an honest-to-God crab? 
Um, I don't think we can say one way or another without uh, like definitive empirical evidence, and it's on Rastapasta to provide that. So I hereby call Rastapasta to provide empirical evidence that he is not uh, an honest-to-God crab. Um, we're going to get back to serious things tomorrow. I, I want to do something about Kirk Cousins' trade partners. I've sort of deferred that question, and I'm kind of running out of time because legal tampering is next week. So I want to get the Kirk Cousins trade and then the same off-season plan thing I did on Monday, but in a world where we trade Kirk Cousins. So I want to get those things out. Of course, if there's news, I'll, I'll prioritize that. But hopefully that's what the next the, the rest of the week is going to bring. In the meantime, check out the Locked On NFL Draft podcast. Check out the Locked On NFL podcast, which is on YouTube, as is this show. I will see you all tomorrow. And as always, skull.